So one of them is called the parable of the weeds, and another one's called the parable of the net. But they're quite related parables, and um, you'll see why soon. And one of the questions that these parables seek to answer is, how can we know if someone, or something, some institution perhaps, someone is genuine in their faith? How can we know if someone is genuine in their faith? And that's all I'm going to say about it. I'm going to go straight to the reading. Matthew 13. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this. He replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? Then Jesus uh, left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. And now I'm feeling a little silly because I lost a few verses here. Can somebody read read out loud verses 29 and 30, where the the landowner said, Do not go and pull them up. Well, they'll all be divided out at the harvest. Go ahead. Read it out loud, Clark. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may... uh root up the wheat with them, and let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Wonderful. Thank you, Clark. I, I make a copy for myself with a larger print, and then I, when I was cutting out all the missing pieces, I cut out too much. That happens. I was wondering why it was so short. I'll continue with verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. They sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question was, how can you know if someone or something is genuine in their faith? And the answer, at least from this parable, is that at some, le- at some stage, at some level, you can't. These weeds looked a lot like the wheat. They, were, they could tell them apart by close inspection, but they were so entangled with the wheat, that to pull them out would, to destroy, would be to destroy the wheat. And so there's this, the, the, the landowner says, let them all grow together. At harvest time, everything will be pulled out and everything will be sorted out. And in the meantime, the field will be mixed. It will have both good elements in it and bad elements in it. And it's just going to be that way until the time of the harvest. And, and so you could sort of look forward to that and say, that's how the whole world will look like until the time of the harvest. And um, St. Augustine wrote 
uh, about this particular parable when he, when he addressed a controversy in the early church known as the Donatist controversy. And he said, in essence, that the world is a mixed body. The, the church, he said even, even the church is a mixed body. It has weed in it and it has weeds sitting right next to it. So look at the person on your left or your right. Well, don't. You know, it could be your spouse and that's kind of scary. One of you could be a wheat and the other could be a weed. And we just don't know. I mean, I hope you know your spouse well enough to know, right? But, but the view was that uh, it's possible even weeds don't know they're weeds. It's possible that bad fish don't know that they're going to get thrown, thrown overboard. It's possible that, you know, you just don't know. And you, you see this even in the parable of the sheep and the goats, you know. The, the people say to the master, when did we do these things? We didn't know we were being righteous. When did we not do these things? We didn't know we weren't being righteous. Well, you know, you're... It's all gonna. It's all gonna come clear at the end, but until then, Augustine said the church is a mixed body, and it and there's nothing really we can do about it. Because if we go in to pull out the weeds, we're gonna pull up the wheat too. If we have an inquisition, and test the authenticity of everybody's faith, it'll tear the whole church down. We can't do that. It doesn't work that way. That the church is a mixed body. The world is a mixed body, and so. This, is, this parable functions in several ways, but one of the ways this parable functions is that this is a lens, a lens that Jesus gives us that we can look at the world with and that Jesus can give us to look at the church with. And the idea is that we can't always know. We don't know what's in another person's heart. We have a hard enough time knowing what's in our own heart, but we certainly don't know what's in another person's heart. So we can't put too much trust in other people or in other institutions. Only Jesus, as revealed in our scriptures, claims lordship over our entire lives. And we can be sure of that ourselves, but we can't necessarily be sure about that for somebody else. And so we look to ourselves and to our own development in faith, our own discipleship, and not to others. And we ask ourselves the question from this parable, how is our soil? How is our growth? What did our seed look like? What does our fruit look like? That's how you know what you are, a weed or a wheat. Well, there's the same lens that Jesus gives us here to look at the church, to look at our own lives, I think can address what, what we can do if we want to look at our nation right now. And I, I mentioned this last Sunday. I said you know, that, that was the Sunday after the Supreme Court handed down a really big decision about gay marriage in the United States. And no matter what states had passed laws for or against gay marriage, it makes absolutely no difference after that day because the Supreme Court made it legal. And so it struck down laws in about eight states in, in one fell swoop. So let's, we, need to be, we need to be thinking about this. We need to be thinking about our nation. We need to be thinking about what, how can we look at our nation in a right way, in a way that's helpful, in a way that will, will move the gospel forward. And so I want to give a little background right now, just a little bit. But, but we often hear it said that, that this is a Christian nation or founded on Christian principles. Has anyone, has anyone heard that before? Of course you've heard that before. Whether you believe it or not actually is up to you. I mean, you, you don't have to agree with that statement at all. Um, and, and just to get you thinking, I, I would probably, just to tell you where I stand, I really don't agree with that statement, and I'll tell you why. It's, bear with me. I, I hope you don't want to run me out of here right now for saying that. But there's, the, there's a, was a, for example, there was a wide faith tradition among the founding fathers. Were we aware of that? We don't, not all the founding fathers were evangelical Christians, and not very many of them were Swedish pietists, you know. They were different kinds of people. 
one of the most important founding fathers we had whose fingerprints are on everything that, that was, was about our nation when it was founded was Thomas Jefferson. And he was a very interesting person, a very well-learned person, but he had a lot of sort of problems as a Christian and as a person, too. He was an incredible hypocrite. Did you know that? He'd be writing tracts against how bad slavery was while he looked out at his windows at his slaves harvesting his crops. <laughs> oh, okay. So that works. He decided in his later life that he was going to craft his own Bible. So he took a razor blade and glue, and he took his Bible, his real Bible, and he started crafting his own Bible. Guess what his Bible looked like? This is what it says from Wikipedia, but I, think it's, I know it's right because I've read this before somewhere else. In the latter years of his life, he took um, razor and glue and cutting and pasting numerous sections from the New Testament as extractions of the doctrine of Jesus. Jefferson's condensed composition is especially notable for its exclusion of all miracles by Jesus, including sections of the four Gospels which contain the resurrection and most other miracles and passages indicating Jesus was divine. So Jefferson was... He could have called himself a Christian, uh, and, and maybe he was a wheat, but he's kind of weed-like. You know, there's some problems here with his theology. He had a big hand on the founding of our nation. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, in his autobiography, identified him as a de- himself as a deist. Now, a deist is somebody that doesn't necessarily believe in the Trinity, doesn't necessarily believe in, in uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, just kind of like God is above all. So there's definitely beliefs in God, but... Not all that other stuff, that confusing stuff about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. One bright spot, and there's several other bright spots. The the one bright spot I'll mention today is John Adams, our second president. From all accounts, he seems like he was a man of devout faith. And he had a big hand in a lot of how the nation was founded. So opinion differs, and I want you to definitely make up your own mind. It's It's a historical question that historians can sort of argue about. But this is the part that we know. The founding of our nation was complex, and it involved a lot of people who had a lot of different philosophies. And I think it would be a mistake to say that it was overwhelmingly Christian in its composition. There were people from all sorts of walks that had their hand in the Declaration. Well, mostly Thomas Jefferson had his hand in the Declaration of Independence, but the Constitution and other things that were involved in the founding of our nations. The other thing is that nowhere in our founding documents... Is there a claim that Christ, as revealed in the scriptures, is sovereign over our country or that the scriptures are authoritative for our, for our country? Our country never was set up as something that claimed that the authority of the Bible was going to govern it in its day-to-day life. That just isn't a reality. And so I think we should take a moment to thank God for this. I mean, do, do you, <laughs> who's with me? You want to thank God that that didn't happen. Because what would have happened if we had set, for example, Christianity as the official religion of the United States of America and the Bible was going to govern our country? Power would reside in the hands of the clergy and it would reside in the hands of the people who interpret Scripture. And if you have a path to power that goes through faith, then the, the clergy is only going to be filled with ambitious people who want human power. It's the fallen nature of our world. 
And so luckily now, the clergy is only filled with people who want no power at all. Can you tell? Yeah. You know, it's like, no, I'm serious. But th th this is actually the greatest challenge that Islam faces right now because there's no real separation there uh, in, in some of the truly Islamic countries between secular power and religious power. And, and for example, in Iran, who is the supreme leader? The supreme leader of the country is also the supreme leader of the expression of Islam in Iran. It's a huge problem. The, people, the, the actual people on the streets in Iran hate it. It's a bad thing. But this is the challenge Islam faces, and it's a challenge that we don't face because actually of the wisdom of our founding fathers is that Christianity is not the official religion of our nation. So our nation is a, is a mixed body, as Augustine would say. It's a mixed body. There are some of the founders who were true believers, godly men who wanted to create a place where there was freedom of religion. But there were other people in that set of founding fathers and mothers who were of a completely different philosophical point of view. But at least they all came together and they created our nation. And we live in it and we enjoy the freedoms of it. But our nation has no allegiance to Christ. And I don't think it ever will. And our nation is actually not mentioned in Scripture. There's no special place in the Bible for America. Did you know that? <laughs> Partly because of the timing, you know. I'm pretty sure the Bible was pretty much being done, written by about maybe 110 A.D. America didn't exist yet. Um, there's a reference to an eagle in Ezekiel that some people kind of hang their, the hat on, but it's a very tiny hook and it's a very tiny hat, I would say. So don't go there. I don't think, that, I don't think America is in the Bible. It is in the Mormon faith. This is actually a big tenet of Mormon teaching, is that America is this exceptional place of manifest destiny that God wants to work through to bring light to the world. And that's the advantage you have when you start writing your, your own scriptures in the 19th century. Then you can write America into the scriptures, but the scriptures that were written before that don't have America in it. So there's no special place in God's economy in this world for America. I think in his eyes we're just as wonderful or just as damnable country as any other country in the world. We're a mixed body. We're a nation full of people who some of us believe in God and some of us don't. Some of our leaders believe in God and some of them don't. Some of our founders believed in God and some of them certainly didn't. And in God's eyes, I hope, I, I pray, that he loves America just as much as he loves Norway, but not Sweden, no, I'm kidding, and Sweden, and whatever country you're from, and every other country in this world. And he desperately desires to reach all of the people in all of these countries with the gospel, and none of them are superior in his mind. If we have been a Christian nation, and there is a sense that we have been a Christian nation, or at least formed by Christian morals and standards, it's because we've been a Christian nation culturally. It's because the first, the earliest, and the most numerous immigrants to this country were Christians of all stripes. And almost all of the very first ones came looking for religious freedoms. You know the story about the pilgrims? They were tired of religious persecution in the Netherlands. And so first they were in England. They got kicked out of England. Then they went to the Netherlands. They got kicked out of the Netherlands. They came to America so they could have free expression of their own particular brand of Protestantism. So America has been this gathering place, at least in the first part of its history, of Christians from around the world seeking freedom, other people seeking other things. So culturally, definitely, we've been a Christian nation, and Christian, Christian thoughts and morals and values have sort of dominated 
our laws and our legal system, and we've tried to elect people who are Christians. Um, in fact, we have probably haven't had really had a president who's not claimed to be a Christian in some form or another. And we came really close to the last election. We didn't come very close to electing Newt Romney, or Mitt Romney, not Newt Romney, Mitt Romney, who would have been the first Mormon president ever. Now, the Mormons would say they're Christians. That's a different discussion. But, they, uh, but you know, we've, we've always been electing Christians to the highest office in the land. Culturally, we've been a Christian nation. But here's the thing, and I think what the Supreme Court did only just underlines this. All of that is changing. And have you noticed that it seems to be changing faster? Like the, the, the rate of change seems to be picking up. I could be wrong about that. I could be wrong about that. So we're becoming what I believe is a, what I would call a post-Christian nation. And I hope that doesn't offend you. I just think I just want to live in reality. I don't think the dominant expression of our culture today is Christian or oriented towards God at all. It's oriented to something else. It's oriented to the God of this world, not to the God that we know. And so our culture is now dictating our laws to our government and to our courts. And, and in a way, that's how, our that's how our country was set up. That's how it should happen. So there's nothing that we can do to change it. There's nothing that we can do to change the culture that is changing to, away from a post, a, into a, a post-Christian culture and a post-Christian nation. You could try. You could rally enough people together. You could rally every last Christian and try to get them to vote on something. You could win some elections. You could win some referendums on this, this or that or the other. But that won't change the culture that is still around us and in which we live and breathe and have our being that, that we are, are a part of. Uh, one example of this is prohibition. Prohibition did not make people less thirsty for drink. It didn't. might have even made some of them thirstier, you know. And it had all these unintended consequences as well. It was a failure on a lot of levels. It was probably good-hearted or probably great motivation to, you know, stop people from drinking and destroying their families and stop wasting all these resources on this problem. But it didn't change the culture. In fact, it created new cultures that were even more dangerous. So, what can we do? What can we do as Christians? We saw from Romans 13 that we're to respect the authorities above us. The Apostle Paul writing, he's talking about the Roman Empire. He's talking about that aspect of the government that protects us, that safeguards our freedoms, that keeps us safe at night from people breaking into our house. We are to respect that authority because it keeps us and our neighbors safe. It's an act of love. Um, so we stay involved and we stay connected to our civic system. Um, there's only one reason to resist your government. And that's if your government outlaws the preaching of the gospel. If the government were to show up today and say, you can't do this, you know, there's like a walk in our door right now uh, and say, you can't do this anymore, then we would have to say, no, we're going to keep doing it. You know, you've got to keep doing it. And that's where you have to be prepared to give up everything you have, even your life, for the sake of the gospel. Because we think the gospel is so worth spreading that we would even risk uh, trouble for it. I, maybe I've told you this story before about my grandfather, who was a, a pastor at the Norwegian Lutheran Church in Oslo, at uh, the, the suburb called Grefsen. 
And um, he was pastor of that church when the Nazis invaded Norway in 1940. And uh, it didn't take him long. Norway did not have a huge standing army. They put up a tiny, a tiny resistance and then basically had to surrender. And the German soldiers came in, and the Gestapo followed right on their heels. And they set about reorganizing Norwegian society and re-electing the parliament and put as their uh, um, prime minister somebody named Vidkun Kvistling. And now he's so infamous that to call somebody a Kvistling is to call them a traitor. And they, they issued a decree that all pastors should read from the pulpits of their church on a certain Sunday how great the Nazis were and how thankful the, the pastors were that the Nazis had invaded Norway and protected it from England and all sorts of crazy lies. And um, every pastor, except one in Norway, I'm not talking about my grandfather now, it was some other pastor. Every pastor in Norway refused to read this thing. It just goes to show that there was a mixed body, though. There was still one pastor. You, know, you, think, of the pa- you think the pastor must be a wheat that pastor was a weed. Even the clergy is a mixed body. There was one pastor who read that thing from his pulpit. But the majority, everybody but him, refused to read it. And since the government of Norway owned the house that my mother grew up in because it was the parsonage of the church, because the government owned the church, that very next day after he refused to read it, they were ushered out of their house. And they had to stay in the house of somebody else. For the duration of the war, they had to be like boarders in somebody else's house for five years because her, my mother's father refused to, to do this. And this is the kind of thing, this is where you resist your government, is when the government makes you use the pulpit to preach a lie or it says you can't use the pulpit at all to preach the gospel. And for, for him, the gospel was at stake. For all those pastors who refused, the gospel was at stake and they resisted. They did the right thing. That's when we resist. But other than that, we respect the authority and we, we stay involved. Um, you, you pay your taxes. Even if your taxes support something you don't agree with because you can't just keep half of your taxes back. The IRS will come and find you. They'll take you away. Um, you serve on jury duty. You can even run for election. There's a lot of things you can do. Stay connected civically to this country. You don't have to create an enclave where only Christians are and they just stay out of the affairs of everything else. Jesus was always connected to the world that he was in. He was always rubbing shoulders with everybody all the time. It never rubbed off on him. And that's the model for us as he stayed engaged with everybody in his society. What else can we do? We can submit ourselves more fully to the lordship of Jesus as, as revealed to us in the scriptures. We care about ourselves It's a mixed body. So we look after our own roots, after our own fruit. And actually, the bright side of this is that we thank God, perhaps, that this is happening. If if our Christian nation wasn't really all that Christian anyways, the sooner that we kind of give up the fantasy that it was a Christian nation, the more we stand out as people who live in this radical contrast to the world around us, to the country around us, And so we're going to, the contrast between us and this nation is going to become sharper and sharper as Christians. And we're going to make enemies by being true to the scriptures. That's just going to happen. The the devil doesn't like it when we stand up with God's word. But we'll also be noticed. And a few people will say, why are you guys so different? You're not like everybody else. You're not going the way of the rest of this world 
you're sticking to your principles, you're, you're following your scriptures. What is it about you that you would give up so much for something that you believe in? Another thing we can do is love and bless people, even if they come to take what's ours. I mean, I could just imagine a day when our church is maybe sued because we stick to the scriptures. And on that day, when they come and take our land, I don't think this will happen, but it might, you know. On that day that they come and take this building and everything around here, we would say, God bless you. We love you. We disagree with this, but we love you. And we keep on going. We, keep on, we go underground, just like the church in the time of the Roman Empire. And that's what maybe we'll start looking like, is the early church subverted the authority that they were under. But not in a violent way or designed to overthrow it in some radical way, but by love, by having power under things instead of having power over things. We have these stories of the Christians who would go into a place where there was a, a plague and take care of the people where everybody else who wasn't sick would leave. And the Christians would die doing this. Or they'd go and get eaten by the lions and they'd stand there peacefully because they knew that their faith was securing them. And the lion would devour them and people would say, what is it about those Christians? They're so different. Most people scream for their life when the lions eat them, you know? And why are they so nice to people that, why are they doing these things where there's nothing in it for them? It's because they were animated by the Spirit and they were doing what the Spirit told them to do. They were subverting the authority they were under until eventually so many people in the Roman Empire became Christians that there was, they couldn't pass any more laws against it. It was just, it was just there were way too many of them. I'd like to see us more in that way of thinking, that we have power under our society, that we have power under. And finally, I think if we want to think about what we can do about the nation that's changing so quickly around us, and this is related to what I just said is, and what we've been saying for the last two weeks, trust in faith that something will happen that we cannot yet see. And we may go to our glory before we see it fully. That may happen. And I pray that it does. You know, Abram believed all these things even though he couldn't see them all just yet. And many of the saints of old were that way. I think that God has plans for us and he has plans for our nation and he has plans for this whole world that are just incredible. But in God's time, and we may not see them, all we need to do is remain faithful and rooted in the ground that we're planted in by the Master. So, we have a little time. And I wanted to say, um, this is the lens I think that we look at America through. And, and please, you can have your own opinion about whether America is a Christian nation or not. I think we're in, I think we're in a stage of being a post-Christian nation. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. And, and you can have a difference of opinion about the founding fathers and the history. And that's okay. We can have differences of opinions on those things. That's totally fine. Um, but the world is mixed. The church is mixed. Our nation is mixed. And so we simply have to remain faithful to Jesus Christ and his word. That's the ultimate source of authority to us. And it may lead us into conflict with the world more and more and more. But we see that as an opportunity to testify to the gospel, not as a problem. It's a problem, but it's a good kind of problem. It's a time for contrast for us to expose who we are so that people are drawn to Jesus, so that our light shines for others. Now, I wanted to say something about 
uh, the Supreme Court. And you, you, know, you, might want, you might ask, where does your pastor stand on these questions? And you have a right to know this, but I, I want to say this in the sense that this is just me and my opinion. It do, doesn't dictate what the church, any opinion that the church may form together. But you have a right to know what I think. And this came up when you hired me as your pastor. The question came up, where do I stand on the question of sexual identity, homosexuality, gay marriage, um, and what I would say is this, is that I'm concerned that our culture has really started to think of identity, the identity of a person, in terms of the sexual choices that people make or the sexual preferences that they have. That this is almost our primary identity. My identity is heterosexual or my, my identity is something else. That based on the choices or preferences that I have. And I think this is an error. I think we don't define our, I don't think we are ultimately defined that way. Our identity does not lie in those choices that we make. Scripture reveals to us that our identity is that we're created and redeemed by God. That's who we are. By a God who loves us so dearly that he experiences humiliation and death to save us from sin. That's who I am. I'm not Hans Eric, the heterosexual person. I'm Hans Eric, the child of God, created by him, redeemed by the blood of his son. That's like, 99% of my identity right there. That, that will last me my whole life. Now, there's other things about me that are interesting. I, the, the, the kind of music I like, the kind of art I like, the, the languages that I speak or the, the books that I read. Sure, those form my identities, and some of those are around my choices, but the, the lion's share of who I am is bound up in the work of Jesus Christ for me. That's who I am. That's how Christians understand our identity. But to make our identity about our sexual choices, I think, is an error. It's a, it's a capitulation to our culture. Scripture has boundaries and restrictions on everybody regarding their sexual expression. Everybody. There's restrictions on heterosexual people on how to express their sexuality in the Scriptures. If you submit to the Lordship of Christ, you submit to sexual boundaries on your life. And that, for, and the, the, as we understand it in the Scriptures... Those boundaries are, for married people, fidelity. Fidelity in marriage. And for single people, celibacy. Those are the categories that God has for us. And they are true for everybody who submits to the Lordship of Christ. I'd also say that Scripture singles out homosexual behavior as not being within God's design. That's what the Scriptures say. It's hard to make a case from the text that this is just a cultural thing when the Bible speaks about homosexual behavior. It's hard. Some, some Bible scholars will try to do that, say, well, that was just for that time. But those people weren't as enlightened or they didn't know as much. And so in this newer time, maybe that's permissible. I think just from, a, just from looking at the texts and how they're written, I think that's a difficult, it's kind of a difficult case to make. I don't, I don't think it quite works. So we submit to the Lordship of Christ as revealed in the scriptures, but we can't, we can't expect anyone else to do so. And I think this is where Christians get caught up, is, is the restrictions are about my life, about what I'm doing. I, I kind of almost don't even have an opinion about what somebody else out there in the world does or doesn't do, especially if they're not followers of Jesus. Because we don't think that you can actually control your behavior. You can't have any of the fruits of the Spirit unless you have the Spirit. So why would I expect somebody to behave as if they have the Spirit when they don't have the Spirit. 
And I can't expect them to, and I can't command them to, and I can't pass a law to make them do that. They have to do that on a one-to-one basis with Jesus Christ or not. And so my job to them is not to condemn their lifestyle. My job is to reveal Christ to them. And they're going to have that conversation with Jesus about their sexuality, about their finances, about many other choices that they make in life. And I trust God and the Spirit to help them align their lives with God's will. I don't need to do that for them. And I think this is where Christians have gotten uh, kind of tripped up, as they want to tell the rest of the world how to live sexually. And it, it's kind of like prohibition. It doesn't change what other people do, but it makes people mad at the church, and it makes it harder for the gospel to get out there. So I'm not going to spend much time doing that, you know. The, 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 the sexual rules in the Bible are for me. And, they're, and following them are my form of worship to God. And other people are going to have to be in charge of their own lives in that way. I think there's room for us to be in conversation with anybody about any topic. There's no fear. Unless we're feared that we're going to lose our faith or lose our conviction or lose our anchoring in the scriptures. Unless you're afraid of those things... Then you shouldn't, if you're afraid of those things, then don't have a conversation with somebody. But if you're not afraid of those things, you can have a conversation with anybody. You can have a loving conversation with anybody. You can seek to understand what another person is going through. So you can have a conversation with a person who's LB, L, I get this wrong, LGBTQ. Is there another one at the end? Sometimes. And I'm not saying that to be, to be flipped, but I, but I think part of this is having respect for everybody. And so you, you call things the way they want to be called is fine. But you can have dialogue. But you, be on, you have to be honest. In any dialogue, you have to be honest and upfront about where you're standing and the convictions you hold. And it's important for our church to do the same. So we say, this is what we think God's world looks like. This is what we think God's design for sexuality looks like. That's where we start. We can't change that about ourselves. But we want to talk to you. We want to be in relationship with you. We want to open avenues for you to see Jesus in us, even if we disagree about this one thing. And, and I think we'd be surprised. There might be some people who would actually want to come and talk to us. Or we could go out in the world and talk to them. We don't have to be afraid of those conversations. Unless we think that in the course of those conversations, we would lose our connection with the scriptures, or we would lose our commitment to Jesus. And if that's the case, then you should probably not have those conversations. You should safeguard what you have. So I could say more about that. And we can talk. I think we want to have a time where we, have, we talk about this as a congregation. And we're going to have to, in our leadership, we're going to have to formulate some, some policies around weddings and things like that. We're going to have to do that now. We're going to have to figure some of that stuff out. And we'll do that. It's fine. It's an opportunity. All this is an opportunity. I just want to say one other, two, three more things real quick about our nation. And this is kind of what I said earlier. Our nation, I don't think, I think we're in a post-Christian stage in our nation, culturally. And I never expect our nation to be led by God. It's a human institution, and so I don't expect it to do things for me that the church would do for me. I don't expect the country to do things for me that a pastor would do for me. But I stay connected to my nation, so I pay my taxes, I vote, and I'm available for jury duty, and I was called up for jury duty like three weeks ago, and then they didn't need me, so I was happy, because it was a busy week. But I was available, and I, I called every day, and I've served on a jury. Um, 
And I, I'm not going to run for office because that's incompatible with being somebody in the clergy. But any of you who, you know, even if you are a clergy, I guess you could decide that you want to do it, but I would say don't do it. But any of you could go run for office. And you should definitely run and, and let your Christian faith inform and guide you as you make wise decisions about any, any community or municipality that you may be asked to help govern or serve on a board or a commission. Stay connected. Jesus did. I want to say one other thing. I love my nation. I love my country. I love looking at the flag. Some people think it's ugly because it's so um, busy. You know, there's 50 stars and 13 stripes. and Some flags are a lot more simple. I think our flag is beautiful. I think it's great. And um, I've lived overseas for five years of my life. Five years. I've lived in other countries. I've, I have visited 40 countries as a tourist. I could never live anywhere else but here. I love it. I love America. I love what uh, I love our nation. I love our history. I love the 4th of July. I love singing the Star Spangled Banner. I feel free and I feel safe in this country. I just don't expect it to be a Christian place. I don't expect it to lead me in faith. I just don't expect it to do those things. Uh, I don't count on it to safeguard my faith. I don't I don't count on it to teach my children about Jesus. It just doesn't do those things. Um, and I think, like I said, we're in a post-Christian age. And the sooner we have the mindset that we are, the sooner we stop trying to make America what it once was, because that won't happen. And the sooner we're led by the Spirit to actually reach America with Christ. But not America the nation, not America the government. I'm talking about the people. One by one, relationship to relationship. That in the end, maybe... This nation will be full of Christians and believers. But our goal is just to, to spread the gospel to anyone who will listen to us. And that they meet Jesus by meeting us. So that's it. And you know that it's a lot of... The last part, like I said, that was just what I think. And I think you have a right to know that. And, you know, whoever wasn't here, I'll have to listen to the recording. Because that was so long, I can't say it again. No, I will. I'll say it again. But we'll have a conversation about this someday, and I look forward to that. And I know there's a lot of opinions, and so um, it's great. Let's pray. Father, I guess we should thank you that we live in interesting times. Although uh, uh, in China, evidently, that used to be more of a, a curse than a, than a blessing. But we live in interesting times, Lord, and interesting things have been happening both in our nation and in our world, we trust that in the end you are up to something good. We trust that you have plans and designs for this world and for each of us in it that we can't see yet, but that we trust. And Lord, we do pray that you would bless not just our nation, but every human individual in this nation, that they may become receptive to hearing the gospel. Lord, help us to stay rooted and connected to you, mindful of our own life in you and bearing fruit for you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.